Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's going to be hard to top last week's podcast with Ken Laird and Chris Curtis. I did the best I could. Honestly, this is one of these ones I'll do it every once in a while. It's just for me. This is Charlie Angle. He's a long-distance uh, ultra-marathoner. He's a star of documentaries, Running the Sahara, one of my favorite sports documentaries about three guys who ran across the Sahara Desert. Uh, he's run a million ultra-marathons, a bad water one. Uh, he has a new book out right now called Running Man, which is absolutely worth reading. Charlie talked to me. He was great for about 45 minutes about everything. He's a guy who's also been in recovery, spent 16 months in jail. He has a wild, crazy, insane story. We got to as much as I could in 45 minutes. A really good conversation with Charlie Angle. So, you know, I got to start out this podcast by saying, as a uh, fan of Running the Sahara, and, uh, you know, I, I'm halfway through Running Man right now, uh, your book, A Memoir, which I'm really enjoying. I just got it yesterday. I'm about 160 pages in, so more than halfway. In Running the Sahara, you took a shot at guys like me, Charlie, simple marathoners. You remember this part? When you're criticizing, you're talking to, I think it's Ray, and he's all banged up. And you said, if anybody, you know, if we want to do something simple, we'd do a marathon. I mean, you know, how dare you? For simple guys like me who aren't maniacs like you, Marathons are an accomplishment. <laughs> How dare you? I, I, I think someone sent me a T-shirt with that on it one year, uh, saying, you know, if you don't want excitement, run a marathon. I, I, I would like to say I regret that comment, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, at the time, I knew what I was saying, and it made sense. But uh, out of context, it's a, it's a very funny, it's a very funny, funny statement. Well, I, I'm a marathoner myself, so I still have. Uh, I still have great respect for the marathon and for all those who tow the line. <laughs> for guys, for guy, yeah, for for guys like you who I mean are you know obviously insane ultra marathons and running across the Sahara and running, uh, trying to run across the country is going up and getting up in the morning and, and running a twenty six mile race. Is that like running a five k for for guys like me? Well, you know, I, I always say actually that marathons are they're the hardest event that I ever do and I still do a fair number of marathons and it's because normally in a marathon no matter who you are or what your pace you know you're kind of redlining the whole time you know you're you're if you have a goal and it doesn't matter if your goal is you know three hours four hours or five hours you know that's probably a goal that's a challenge for you and so you know I find that in a marathon I'm I'm pushing my limit all the time albeit for a shorter period of time than I am if I'm running 100 miles. So on the surface, 100 miles sounds a lot harder, and in some ways it, it's certainly a bigger mental challenge. But, but physically, I don't think I ever feel the intense uh, discomfort in a 100-miler that I normally feel in a marathon. So I think what marathons really do is they, why I still love doing them is I like the, the energy of standing at the starting line with hundreds and, and often thousands of people who, you know, who have the same goal as I do to, to get to the finish line. And it doesn't matter if you're the, the, the CEO of a major company or the, mm-hmm. 
custodian at the local high school, you know, everybody's got the same chance uh, and the same experience about to happen for them. We're going to we're going to get into your story, which is wild. I almost don't know where to start, but I guess I'd ask you. So I've run uh, eight marathons. I finished eight marathons. No big deal next to a guy like you. But, you know, in the past, about 10 years ago, I started tinkering with the idea of, you know, maybe I'll do a 50 miler or maybe I'll do a 40 miler and get into what. At what point in your mind do you are you able to sort of move past the marathon and go into that? My number one concern, past how hard it was, I guess, is that you almost have to be selfish to a really large extent to be able to do that. I mean, wouldn't you say you give up so much of your time to do it that you're giving up on other stuff, right? Well, you know, I I have to tell you, and I, and I hate to, to burst the bubble on that, I honestly don't think you would find a huge difference in your training between the marathon and the 50-mile. And the well, 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 so hold on, but if, but if you're training for a bad water or something, it's got to take over your life. Well, sure, but, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't start there. But, like, if you jumped into a 50-mile, like I would say uh, right now, if you've done eight marathons, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think if I remember right, you've, Several of them have been Boston, and yeah. so you know your way around a running course, and you know what it feels like to suffer in training and in a race. Because I'm, I'm sure you have your own stories of of wanting to, you know, pull the plug on something, right? <laughs> but you you push past that and you keep going. You know, an ultra is much more of a puzzle. It's a your body, as, as you know, can store enough glycogen and you can stay hydrated well enough for a marathon without, you know, without incredible effort. I mean, you have to, you'd have to really screw up and like not drink a, a single cup of water along the route, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get over dehydrated. An ultra is, is a puzzle in that it's, it's more about hydration and nutrition uh, than it is about the physicality of it. Yes, you need to go out and do your your long run, and yes, you need to do some tempo runs during the week. But it's nothing. It's nothing like, frankly, training for a marathon. The the most important thing to prepare for is the mental aspect of it. You know, a fifty miler. If you're a four hour marathoner, you're probably going to be a ten or eleven hour fifty miler. I mean, you might be faster than that, but you know, right. it's, so it's a long time to be out there. If, and you have to prepare for that. If running an ultramarathon uh, normally is a puzzle, how would you describe running an ultramarathon around a track in a prison? <laughs> I'd call that a mind fuck. <laughs> because, well, I mean, we should give a little backstory. So, uh, so uh, you know, Charlie writes his book, Running Man, and it goes into detail. And I've I got to admit, like I said, I've watched the documentary a couple of times just in the past. I've followed your story sort of as a – as a casual sort of fan of running and of that documentary, and, and found out whatever it was, Charlie, you could you can correct me. Five, well, I, what 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 year did you go to prison? Eleven, is that right? 2011? Two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. Yeah, Valentine's Day. Valentine's <laughs> Day, two thousand eleven. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, reading it quick, like you know, like you normally do if you read the story, and thinking, okay, well, this guy has turned out to be, you know, a, a fraud, I guess, to put it properly. Uh, and you sure. kind of you kind of read the story, you read a paragraph, you say, okay, I moved on with this guy, and you call your friend who watched the documentary too. You say the same thing, and you forget about the guy. I've read more and more about it, and I gotta, I gotta admit, Charlie, I'm, I'm. If you can explain it in ninety seconds, you know, God bless you. I don't really understand what happened. Does that make me a dummy, or is it, is it in fact that convoluted? No, no well, I, I don't really understand what happened either. But basically, you're you're talking to you know the first and only person in the country at the time 
who as a borrower, uh, just a regular home loan borrower, was accused and convicted and sent to prison for allegedly overstating income on a home loan application. And there were two loans and two applications, and one of them was overstated. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. I mean, that's that's the that's that's their version. Okay. You know? And, you know, and in the book, I I don't to tell you the truth, it was a man such a long process of writing this book, and the first you know the first draft was probably unreadable in the sense that you know I felt like I needed to to explain every single detail that I had learned about you know what happened to me in this legal case, and. By the time the final product was, you know, was printed, hopefully you'll find you're not there yet in the book, but you'll find that, you know, the explanation, so to speak, is mm-hmm. much more about just the you know, the nuances. And, and yes, it explains what happened, but you know, I, I guess it's the old the old adage about not. Um, not trying to explain everything, not trying to make uh, excuses about everything, and and simply, you know, while I did not agree with what happened to me, and I, I feel it was an injustice, you know, I got to a place where I needed to just get on with my life. But there was somebody... And, you know, I, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I learned that through, you know, you, you are through the part of the book where, you know, you see how I... I spent my 20s right. with a lot of drug and alcohol issues yep. and you know at 19 years clean and sober I certainly didn't expect to be uh you know indicted by the federal government for you know for overstating income on a home loan application <laughs> right I, 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 you know, I didn't know what to do with that I think you did the same thing that I did I mean I stopped drinking in 2004 and started running now I didn't go to the extreme that you did but i do wonder what that link is and it's clear i mean listen anytime you read about these ultra marathon guys you know it feels like 90 percent of the time it's transferring one addiction to the other maybe a more healthy one although i think kind of a crazy one too i wonder what part of the brain that is i mean you know when i don't drink anymore now i run marathons i don't i don't know what that is exactly but i do well, feel and no I, and I, I would no i'm sorry but i was gonna say and you probably feel the same way though like there are days where you, ha- if you haven't run yet in that day, you do feel like you're going to go crazy. I mean, there are days I absolutely feel like that. Well, and run, and I agree completely. And running, what running does for me, and I, and I think for the non-runners out there, if they're exercising at all, they would still relate to this. And that is that it it, it sets things in things in order. It puts things in order for me. Like my my daily routine feels chaotic and my brain is going a thousand different directions like, like so many people. And I don't know if that's just normal or if that's my, my addict always wanting to take on every single challenge and do it perfectly. But, you know, the reality is when I put on the running shoes and I go out the door and I get a couple miles into it, I can almost, I can almost feel all those, those things that I've gotten rolling around in my head you know, getting in line and I'm, I'm getting my schedule in order and I'm feeling better physically and I'm, I'm so much more capable of, of handling the day. But on, on, the, on the addiction front, you know, I've always taken issue, and I, I mean this slightly tongue-in-cheek, you know, I get that people see me run and see you run, you know, long miles and they think, oh, well, you know, he's still the same guy. He's just, instead of drinking, he's, you know, he's running. When I when I drank and did drugs, you know, my entire goal was to be absent 
<laughs> was to be vacant and to be uh, to hide every aspect of my personality and to you know to just not feel anything. Well, nothing could be more the opposite than running. You know, running is all about feeling everything and about being completely and absolutely present in not only the running moments but the rest of the day. So. You know, for those people who my, my experience is that most of the people say that say uh, addicts just switched addictions when they run. You know, they're they, they tend to be people who just are determined to find fault in this new way of life. Do you enjoy pain though? I mean, because when you you know the day after I'm finished a marathon or two days after I you know can't walk up and down stairs. When you run across the Sahara, how many miles a day did you run when you ran across the Sahara? Yeah, we basically ran two marathons a day right. for 111 consecutive days. So you must have felt like hell for a lot of those days. Do you enjoy the process of running through pain or feeling pain? So I'll give you a uh, – I, yes, I mean, to a degree. And, and after a lot of years of sobriety now, 24 years, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's morphed. You know, in the early years, I thought it was necessary for me to, like, kill my addict. That's the best way to put it. Like I wanted to take a knife and carve that part of me out. And I thought the best way to do it was just to go out and and like punish myself. So in in a sense, running was penance. It was, it was punishment and me, me sort of paying a price. But through the years, what I figured out is, you know, it's the addict part of me that actually makes me good at things, including running. You know, I have to, you know, I have to use that determination that I've got. I mean, the same determination I used to use when I was drinking and doing drugs, I have to use it towards, you know, towards better things. And and running is, you know, running is one of those things. But it's a, as I sit here right now, I ran on Saturday, I ran Saturday, Sunday, I ran 27 hours and 112 miles in in a race that I just did. So, as I'm sitting here, I'm incredibly sore. <laughs> you going to run today? <laughs> am, am I? No, no. No, I won't run. I'll, I might get on a bike today and spin out a little bit to try to get some of this soreness out. But, but your question right there is a perfect one. There was a time, you know, even in early sobriety and, and after seven or eight years where I probably would have still gotten up on a day like today, even feeling battered and bruised and gone out for a run because I had to run. Today, I don't, you know, I don't know what the difference is. Maybe it just is a little uh, age and, and seasoning. But, you know, today I'm very happy to not run and to let my body just recover and, uh, you know, and just and just enjoy, actually enjoy the fact that I just accomplished this, this thing, that I just did this run this past weekend and, and I had a great time and enjoyed myself. And so I, I, I think people will find in the book, too, mm-hmm. that I – I do travel this journey of being very self-destructive in a lot of ways to a place where I seek happiness much more than I seek suffering these days, and, and that's a big change for me. Is there a part of you, and maybe this is a dumb question, that misses that run that you were so used to doing in, in prison? Absolutely. It was simple. I mean, it was it was simple and orderly, and once I gave over to the fact that my, my schedule and my life was not my own for that period of time, and again, this goes back to recovery, you know, there was a level of acceptance that I had to reach that, okay, 
this is my current situation. Fair or unfair, just or unjust, you know, this is where I am. And it's now my responsibility to make the best of the situation. And, you know, and, and just like just like they say in, you know, in recovery talk, you know, attraction rather than promotion. You know, I went into, I was in Beckley Federal Prison in Beckley, West Virginia, and I went in there and I, I started running. I started just doing what I do. And at first, people like even made fun of me and I would do yoga out in the middle of the softball field. And, and after a few months, guys started coming up to me and saying, hey, uh, you know, I've never done any running or yoga before. Would you mind if I joined you? You know, and I got there to Beckley and there was, you know, very little running going on. And by the time I left, you know, I think there were 40 or 50 guys that were running on a regular basis. And I didn't do, that's not, you know, I didn't do anything other than just do what I do. And, and other people, you know, saw something in that that they wanted were you uh, were you able to get could you bring in running shoes how did how did that whole thing work no no my you, you'll see in the book my my first acquisition of running shoes cost me uh several packages of tuna and a jar of peanut butter <laughs> right and uh you know eventually I was able to you know purchase a pair of shoes through the commissary but you know you're not allowed to bring anything in and nothing can be sent in to you other than books and you know that was the other thing that I did is I read you know I probably read way far more than 100 books while I was in there and you know I I spent my time reading and running and and doing my job and you know, minding my business and, and just, you know, treating it as a as a learning opportunity rather than a punishment of some type. How long did it get you take you to not be angry anymore? I think we're just, di- you know, we're just different. For me, I think I would be trying to chase this <laughs> this guy forever, this guy who watched the documentary, according to you, and wanted to bring you down. I mean, it'd be my life's work. Yeah, you know what I've, I've learned, and I mean, I, I think sadly most, most people who've ever had an encounter with that part of the federal government understand that there, statistically speaking, there is no winning. You know, there's no, you know, once you're a target, you know, you're, you're pretty much done for. And yes, I was angry for a long time. um, And there's certainly still a part of me that, uh, you know, would love for this, this wrong to be righted. But you know, I, I got out, I, I met an amazing woman, I got married, I, you know, I started running again, I'm doing a lot of public speaking again, my book is out, and, you know, I tried to look at it as, you know, I tell the story, uh, and and just let the chips fall where they may. I mean, I, 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 I think also I watched a lot of guys while I was in prison just consumed by anger and bitterness, and... You know, and I watch guys in there, too, who, I mean, for me to say that I was treated unfairly while while I feel that was true, you know, I'm, I'm in a cell next to guys who, you know, got 25 years for a small amount of drugs or something like that, and I'm, I'm like, man. Well, your roommate got 10 years, right, for, for drugs, no? Yeah. Yeah. For buying a bag of weed. He was a 23-year-old kid who literally just bought a bag of weed from the wrong guy at the wrong time. And, you know, ends up with a 10 year sentence in federal prison. And it's, you know, I don't I think it's it's one of the only bipartisan issues. 
issues that that seems to still have traction in Washington, and that is that you know some things need to change. And prisons were meant for people that you know are dangerous and that society should be afraid of somehow, and and not just for people that you know we're mad at somehow. The, the thing I like best about running and, you know, when I'm done with the show here in the morning is, you know, sometime in the afternoon I'll go out and grab 40 or 45 minutes and it's legitimately an escape. You kind of can shut your brain down or you can think about other stuff. I have to think, obviously, for you, your couple mm-hmm. of hours a day you could do it. It was, you know, you would, I would guess sometimes pretend you were somewhere else, think about something else. It must have been, you know, a life-saving experience, I would think, to have in jail to be able to do this. It was fantastic, and I, you know, I read a couple of books. Uh, there was a book called The Star Rover by Jack London that was just very much, I, I just stumbled upon it, and it was very much about, like, sort of mental time travel. And I don't want to sound too uh, off the wall here, but, you know, prison gave me this place where, just as you said, you know, the circle I was running around in there was the same, and I looked at it as a mental challenge to, to try to take myself to other places. In a lot of cases, places I'd already been. Uh, you know, the Boston Marathon. I've also run, I think I've run five Boston, mm-hmm. and, you know, including the 100th. And that was, a, that was a very unique experience for me. And I, one of my favorite races I've ever done. And I, I go back, I went back to that place mentally, you know, very often. And the cheering crowds and, uh, you know, the feel of running through Wellesley and of, you know, high-fiving every little kid along the, along the route. And I did a lot of that while I was in there. And, and it, you know, it's, it got me through that experience and, and hopefully, you know, even made me, made me better before it was all over. What's the toughest race you've ever run? Is it Badwater? Was it, I guess the Sahara wasn't a race. Was that the toughest one? I mean, you know, I've seen documentaries. I've read about Bad Water, and that's you know a lot of people listening to this podcast might not know. That's a that's a uh, a race through Death Valley in the summer, right? Where the it, the temperatures can feel like you know two hundred degrees on the ground. Uh, is that is that yeah. the toughest yeah. race you've ever run? You know, it, it's there's a, it's a toss up. The toughest race I've I've ever run is usually the one I just did. Yeah, but um, but you know, Bad Water is. I have had a couple of amazing experiences which sound crazy that i've that i've had easy races at badwater a couple of times well how is that explain to me how that's explain me how that's possible you know (laughs) i mean how is that possible yeah i went in mentally prepared i was i was ready for the heat because badwater is you know the ambient temperature is usually 130 and the surface temperature is around 200 charlie can i ask real quick how how do you train how do you prepare yourself training wise do you run in a sauna for that race the train well, you know, some guys do, and I, I never did, but I, I live in North Carolina, and so for me, and, and this, there's some funny stories around it, I would, I would put on, you know, in June, I'd put on two pairs of sweatpants and three sweatshirts and a, a knit cap and gloves. Jesus and Christ. I would go out and run for four <laughs> or five hours, you know, in, in North Carolina summer heat, which is, you know, as, as humid and as bad as anything. I even had the... Uh, this park where I run very often uh, on a couple of occasions, someone called the park service on me <laughs> because they were, they were absolutely certain I was either hiding a weapon or that there was something very wrong with this right. person. Right. And, uh, you know, their park ranger would come up and like, yeah, yeah, excuse me, sir, everything okay. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but it is a look ultra running 
and I would even argue marathoning is is a uh, is very similar. You know, my my joke line is always that it, it's fifty percent mental, and the and the rest of it's all in your head. Right. And right. you know, it's a because it is a as you know very well, it's a mental exercise. You know, your body will do what your mind tells it to do, but the moment your mind takes a turn for the worse, your body crumbles. It's a it's a fascinating thing, and I I do think that I have a unique well, well it's maybe not unique because a lot of people who've recovered from drugs and alcohol addiction and and gone on to be great athletes and and whatever which I'm not not a great athlete but I'm a stubborn athlete and I think what I what I learned in those very tough years the suffering that I dealt with in twelve through twelve years of serious addiction is that this isn't shit. <laughs> this running, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a game. This is this is for fun. This is this is the way that I scrape away all the crap of my daily life because it's the same as everyone else's just in a different package and I I take the whatever anger and bitterness and stress and all those things and I I'm able when I go out and run to just shove all that aside for a little while, and it makes you know it makes me capable of of functioning as a moderately normal human being for the rest of the day. Part of the process that's always interesting to me is in in you know in the, in the marathons or whatever is you sign up for it, you train for it, you work hard for it, you think about it all the time, you worry about what you eat, you worry about when you sleep, but in the back of your head, for me anyways there's always that weird sense of dread for the actual event itself. Do you have that same thing? Or are you always looking forward to these races? <laughs> um, it's a, com- it's definitely a combination. And I will, I'm, I'm going to go back to something you said a little while ago about you thought about running a 50 mile or, or whatever. And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'll give you at least a, a, a mild challenge here that, you know, the hardest part is just getting on your computer, picking the race and entering it. And you, you know that, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous about I'll talk about my addiction, but in, in my days, scoring drugs was far more powerful than actually doing them very often. So the excitement of it? Build, exactly. Yeah. There's this buildup to actually getting your hands on, you know, the drug, because very often, you know, cocaine was my thing. And so very often the the pursuit and the acquisition of the drug was incredibly difficult and convoluted and scary and exciting and all of these sort of sick and twisted things. But I get it and I have that in my pocket and it was a powerful feeling. So to make a weird analogy, hitting the enter button on entering a fifty miler is a it's a powerful uh, feeling. Right, because you're in, you're committed, yeah. To, Right, you're right, in. Right. And then, of course, there's the reality later of, oh, my oh, God, shit. now I have yeah. to run 50 miles. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, but you will find, I mean, God, I'm just telling you, man, it's a powerful feeling. And, and the, I guess I don't really have the dread anymore. What I have is the excitement because part of the reason, and this, this gets, I don't want to get too off the wall here, but look, I think we all, to a degree, especially addicts, we spend our lives trying to chase that first high, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that those feelings we had of euphoria and the actual physical way that it affected us. 
is it's powerful. And so then we spend years or sometimes a lifetime trying to achieve that same feeling. Well, running in a strange way has some of the same effect. You know, you, you can't go back and do your first marathon again. And whether it was a great experience or a really painful one, whatever, it's one that every runner remembers really well. And so we try to replicate that, but it's not, it's not possible. You have the chance, like right now, if you enter a 50-miler, 40-miler, whatever it is, if you were to enter an ultra now, you, you all of a sudden, once again, have this chance at a first experience. But you've got a lot of other experience to take with you to that experience. Am, so I, just, you, you, am I just making excuses, though, when I say, you know what, I've got a job where I'm up early, I have uh, a yes, couple of young kids, you I am just totally being, <laughs> I'm being a total pussy. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I, I, I have, same. That's that's so that's, that's not. You. There's no way that's true. The race is twice as long. Well, okay. I'll just ask you one question. What's the longest? What's the longest long? Your, oh, god. Go ahead. When you ran your marathon, yeah. did you have a time goal? Uh, some I have, some I haven't. Yeah. Okay. So with this one, you know, I would say for your first ultra, should you choose to go down this path, you know, you probably wouldn't have a time goal. Your goal would be to get through the just to finish, thing. right? Absolutely. And, yeah, and so look. All you're talking about is doing your normal runs during the week, and maybe instead of doing a, you know, an 18 miler on Saturday, and I, I do a lot of training by time, pretty much all of mine instead of distance. Yeah. So I will go out and say, okay, I can budget, you know, four hours today, and I'm going to go run, or I'm going to go run walk, or I'm going to, you know, my commitment is to the four hours, not to any particular speed. Okay. So my point is, and, so, okay. So I'm thinking if I do a 26 mile, your traditional marathon, the long run I'll yeah. do is 20 mm-hmm. or 22, which is, you know, say it's yeah. 84% of 26. So I don't have to do a long run yeah. of 42 before a 50 then is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and get this, you know, whatever your, whatever your kind of uh, per mile pace is for yeah. that training, you're, you're going to add at least a minute, a minute and a half per mile right. for training for this ultra. So it's, I'm just telling you, it's different. It's in a lot of ways, a lot less pressure packed because everybody wants to know, you know, you run your marathon. What's your okay, time? What was your time? Right. And, and, you know, there's not that same pressure in the ultra world. Nobody gives a shit about your time. Who cares? If, if running 50 miles doesn't impress somebody, then your time isn't going to impress them. That's either. a good point. That's a good point. You're almost, <laughs> you're almost talking me into this. You're good. You're, 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 you're sneaky. You, well, might, you, you might fool me into dangerous. doing this. I've been told it's dangerous talking to me. <laughs> you, you, will, you will feel, uh, I'm just telling you, you can, you can do this. If you can run a marathon, you can run it. Just like I tell people who can run you know, a 10K or they're trying to even go from the half marathon up to a marathon. I'm like, look. If you can run a half marathon, you can go out next weekend and run a marathon. Yeah, that I believe. Not be right. Fast, right. You know. Right. I mean, so and who? So what if you go run a fifty miler and it and it takes you three times as long as your marathon? What? What's so? What's the? What's your point? That's true. That's you true. Know, you 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 accomplish something that will take you to a different place. And here's the greatest. Seriously, the greatest gift. If you remember what it felt like standing on the start line of your very first marathon, mm-hmm. you were probably scared shitless. Totally you're scared looking shitless. Around and you know everybody else looks like they know what they're doing. Yep. And you don't have a clue. Yep. And you got to pee. You're course, nervous. The whole them, thing. Right. Half. Yep. Right. You had to pee. Half of them felt the same way too, though. Good a lot point. Of them didn't know what they were doing, but you know, you get to have that feeling again. 
what better, especially for someone in recovery, what better friggin' feeling and reminder of being alive than standing, at getting ready to do something that you don't know if you can do it or not? This, Who the hell wants to keep doing something over and over that they're certain they can accomplish? Where's the challenge in that? This is bullshit. I brought you on here just to promote Running Man, which is a great <laughs> book. And now this afternoon, I'm going to be scrolling to these fucking websites, looking at this. You know, hey, this 50 mile in Vermont looks like it'll be a lot of fun. And now I'm going to you've absolutely screwed me now for the next couple of weeks. I appreciate that. I you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> what's My the pleasure. what's the next? You know, you did the Sahara. You try to go across the country. What's the next big thing? What's the next big race for you? So I've got I've got two races left this year. I'm going to China in a month, and it's actually a Badwater event. It's an inaugural event in China, uh, put on by Chris Kaufman, the race director for Badwater, and so it's 102 miles through some crazy mountain range in northern China. I don't even know where I'm going. I'm just I'm getting on a plane. Okay. Um, then I'm going to go down to Daytona Beach and run a 100-miler in December, actually on the beach, a big race called the Daytona 100 down there. Jesus. Um, and then I get to really have some fun. I'm planning uh, a run across Cuba in the spring. <laughs> How far is that? And uh, So it's about 600 miles, a little short of 600 miles. Mm-hmm. So it's not, a, it's not an incredible incredibly long distance, no. 600 miles across Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I'm running it with a guy named Pat Farmer. And this guy is a machine. He's an Aussie, Aussie runner who uh, has run from the North Pole to the South Pole, among other crazy things. There are more of us out there. Right. Um, and we're going to do this one together and, and make a film. Uh, and then the, the final like big thing, but this has been out there for years for me, but it's my... It's my big project that has yet to be done, and that's to actually run from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on Earth, to uh, you know to Mount Everest and basically climb to the top. So it would be a a lowest to highest expedition, which I think is a pretty darn good analogy for you know for my my life and for most of our lives. You know, we all we all have those uh, those journeys that we're on to get from you know to get from our toughest times to the best times when are you going to stop dicking around with these little races and just run around the world just do it once and then <laughs> you'll be done there'll be nothing else to do you'll have accomplished it all that's that's a good point and believe me it has it has occurred to me you know and i would i would love to my my wife is actually a former uh, pro beach volleyball player and a far superior athlete to me uh, and if I can convince her that she should go with me on that journey, then uh, then it'll be on. Let me. I, I'm gonna ask you one or two quick questions, and I'll, and I'll let you go. Uh, I'm a big fan of the documentary. I've watched it, like I said, a few times. Do you think that you were portrayed properly, accurately in that? When I watched it the first time, I was like, this guy's kind of a dick. I mean, is that sort <laughs> of is that sort of fair or no? No, that's fair. That's okay. fair. And I, I, what I would say to anyone, you know, and, I've, and I have answered that, that question a couple of times. And, you know, look, I wasn't thrilled with the portrayal in the movie um, in the sense that, you know, I think I was both the – I think people recognize in general that had I not pushed so hard that we probably wouldn't have made it across the desert. I agree with that, yeah. Um and then on the other hand, you know, some people would argue with my methods and, and I would, 
without trying to make excuses, I would say there's certainly a few situations I would I would love to have behaved a little better, but I would also say that that 500 hours of footage was was you know right, put minutes. into a 90 yeah. a 90 minute yeah 100 minute film and you know if you've ever read anything about reality tv you can kind of take anybody and make them look like a dick or or look like the good guy well it seemed like now, at the, it seemed like that, at the end that you sort of the way it was portrayed in the movie is that you kind of took off on the two guys and you were going to yeah, finish by yourself didn't, that simply didn't happen it did not happen that way and you know and in the in the book i again it's another one of those chapters where you know i, I I had to stop myself from over-explaining, but, you know, the way it happened in real life, I mean, what, first of all, I always ask the question, why, why would I run all the way across the Sahara with two guys and then ditch them in the end? If I wanted to assure myself of being, like, called the biggest dick of all time. That would do it. That would do it. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, may be, I may be a little uh, rough sometimes, but I'm, I don't think I'm stupid. And, you know, that would just be idiotic. Plus, they're my brothers, man. I, I, lo- I love these guys, and uh, we're still great friends, all of us. And I'm, I've always found it interesting that nobody ever held their feet to the fire a little bit and said, you know, didn't you, why didn't you trust your friend who, who basically put this entire thing together, took you out to the Sahara, and did you really think it was his intention to, <laughs> to then on the final day, you know, somehow ditch you guys and finish before you i mean it just it it actually on the surface it makes so little sense that it's it's hard to even uh conceptualize but it's just not the way it happened but it made for good you know the director and editor you know it it made for a more interesting film i guess you could say so i certainly didn't see it before it came out when you plan something like that do you know going in when you're going to run that race that you know there's just going to be you know X amount of chaos is just going to be part of it that you really can only plan so much when you're running across a desert? Man, it's a great question, Kirk. And I really, uh, again, it goes back to the lessons I learned in, in sobriety because for the first couple of weeks of that expedition, since you've seen the film, mm-hmm. you saw how we, as I always call it, we dove into the abyss. I mean, our, our bodies, especially the other two runners, I, I fared a little better, but we you know, we kind of fell apart, like the entire expedition sort of fell apart. You know, the crew was not doing well, the runners were doing poorly, and it it seemed like we were on life support. And then magically, the the human body starts to recover. Right. I always say it's like my body said, well, fuck you. Okay, you're trying to kill me. So I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you and I'm going to recover. And so we started feeling better. But what, what I did was at that point, I realized I was so worried about, you know, getting into Libya or, you know, visualizing myself, you know, finishing this thing that I forgot that the only thing I could really control was that particular day. So starting around day 15, I, I quite literally just I woke up every day at four. I said to myself, OK, all I want to do is get to lunch. And so we'd go out, we'd run a marathon, we'd get to our lunch break and eat and take a little nap and get up. And then all I worried about was getting to dinner and, you know, running another marathon. And, and then it would be over for the day and I'd get up and do it all over again the next day. 
So it really embodied the one day at a time, you know, mantra that's in recovery, like in the most real way I'd ever experienced. Because I just couldn't, I couldn't control everything. And, you know, I knew that it would all work out if we just simply kept moving forward. And isn't that really the case in, in all things? The best part of the whole movie for me, the funniest part of the whole movie, is you guys are going through hell, the three of you. You, Kevin, and Ray, and they cut to the two guys who had left to help negotiate, and they're in that bar, and they're drinking beer, and they're stuffing their faces. It's 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 kind of a funny if you watch it, sort of funny back and forth. It would drive me crazy if I were you watching that now. It was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> you know, when I saw it in the film, I mean, I was pissed at the time, as you saw in the film. I I gave my crew a hard time, and you know, Chuck, the 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 one guy who was my main crew guy. I mean, he's crewed for me in Badwater six times, and and he's one of my best friends in the world. And you know, and he he knew he knew I wasn't happy. And uh, you know, we we got through it though. And there's always look. I've always said if I'm going to run across something big, I'm probably going to have to apologize people when it's over <laughs> are you comfortable are you is and, it, are you also comfortable knowing before it starts is there's a chance that it's going to fail absolutely you're okay with well, failure look, i ran across yeah i ran across you know the u.s in 2008 trying to set a record for the fastest crossing and and you know i failed miserably at that one um but i'm still willing to write about it and it's portrayed in a film also and mm-hmm. And, and actually, there's a guy out there right now running. There's a friend of mine, and I'm his kind of mentor, if you will, named Pete Kostelnik. And Pete is right now on day 36. And on day 36, running across the country, he's averaging 72 miles per day Jesus. for 36 consecutive days. And the record's pretty old, he, right? You know, the, the, that record's 30. 36 years old. Yeah, yeah it's a New Yorker, uh, Frank Giannino is right. his name, who set the record back in 1980. And Many, many runners, I was going to say great runners, but I don't know that I include myself in that category, but many, many accomplished runners have taken a shot at that record and failed. And and Pete is the first guy, you know, to really, really give it a good shot. I mean, right now he's about two days ahead of the record, and he's only got uh, probably six days left, so unless unless the wheels come off completely, that amazing record is getting ready to fall. And I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, on one hand, I told him, I said, look, dude, I'm going to help coach you and and mentor you. And, and what I was saying to Chuck, the guy from running the Sahara, Chuck is mm-hmm. his crew chief. So I actually gave him, I gave Pete my crew because I knew he needed to be in good hands. And, you know, I told Chuck that, on day on the next to last day, just one little slice in the Achilles would probably stop him from getting the record. <laughs> right. That way, I could still have a shot. Still have a at chance. Time. <laughs> right. I, I told Pete. I said, "Man, if you want to be really kind and generous, just break break the record, but break it by like fifteen minutes. Yeah, give you a so chance. So I can dream that I have a shot. But I think he's getting ready to put it out of reach for pretty much everyone for a long time. But. Well, I appreciate the time in the book, Running Man, the memoir. Charlie Angle is great. You can go to Amazon. You go anywhere to get it. And you can follow him, as I just did during this podcast, at Charlie Angle on Twitter. That's correct as well. And charlieangle.com. The book is Running Man. Uh, go get it. I can't recommend it enough. I'm halfway through it. I'll finish it the next day or two. It is a really good read. Charlie, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for your time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Charlie. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.